So a year ago, we started a sermon series in the book of Acts, and we've kind of broken it up into mini-series because we know that our attention span isn't, isn't very awesome in 2019, myself included. Um, so we broke it into all these mini-series, and we're actually in the last mini-series. We're nearing the end of this epic journey through the book of Acts. And this last mini-series is called Facing Life because we see Paul desiring to get to the city of Rome. He wants to go there, he wants to encourage the followers of Jesus there, build up the church, and continue to do what he's been doing, which is share the story of Jesus as Lord and King, resurrected Jesus with as many people as possible. But before Paul goes to Rome, he has to first make a pit stop in Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, things get sort of crazy. And so what we see with Paul is this really important lesson, I think, for all of us, that you can't ultimately move forward, you can't go forward without first stepping back. Paul's going back to the places that he's been, he's going back to the people he's been with, and he's uncovering and having to wade through all of this really difficult, painful, literally painful stuff. And the same is true for you. You can't move forward without first looking back. You can't get to where you're ultimately wanting to go unless you're able to first courageously look back and face your life. So in this week's story, things get dicey pretty quickly. Like things accelerate fast. And the climax of the story that we just read is verse 25. And in verse 25, we see a Roman soldier stretching Paul out in order to beat him, in order to get information from him. And Paul obviously has some sort of flair for the dramatic because he doesn't say, like he has lots of opportunity to say something and he doesn't until the last possible moment. I imagine the Roman soldier has the whip raised in his hand when finally Paul stops him and says, wait, wait, are you going to Torture, are you going to beat a Roman citizen who has not even been condemned, who hasn't even been found guilty? The Roman soldier at that drops the whip, runs to his commander, realizes the trouble that they're in because of Paul's Roman citizenship, because of Paul's privilege. Privilege is something that has gotten a lot of cultural attention over the last few years, and I think that's a really good thing. Um, we at Christ City think that's a really good thing, so a lot of these conversations aren't very new to us. We've been wading into these waters a lot over the past few years. But this story presents a very interesting opportunity for us this morning and for us moving forward. Because what we see Paul do is Paul recognizes his privilege as a Roman citizen. He knows all that that means, that it's illegal for um, a Roman citizen to be tortured until he or she is, is found guilty. That's not the case for non-Roman citizens at the time, unfortunately. Paul realizes and recognizes and is aware of the privilege that he has in his particular society, in his particular culture, and he uses that. And so it presents the question for us. So what do, we, what do we do with our privilege? 
If you were a privileged person like I am as a white man in 2019 in the South who's a pastor, it's like privilege all around. What do, what do we do with that? I think that's a really important conversation. And so we're gonna start that conversation this morning, but I really do hope that this is just the start of us continuing to talk and dialogue and reflect on this very important question. So to help us start moving in the right direction on the journey, let's first kind of unpack the story, get a little bit more context so it can guide our conversation this morning. So this morning we're here in Acts 22. Of course, the scene that precedes Acts 22 is Acts 21, which is what Robin preached about last week. And in that story, we see Paul arriving in Jerusalem And when he arrives in Jerusalem, things get crazy. Like the pot is stirred up, but it's not Paul intentionally trying to stir up the pot. It's simply his presence and the things that he's about, the things he stands for that stirs up, especially these sort of zealous um, Jewish religious fundamentalists. And so they accuse Paul, we don't even know if it's true or not, but they accuse Paul of defiling the sacred temple by taking in Gentiles who are not Jews. And so out of that accusation, they stir up this mob that grabs Paul and is beating him literally to the point of death. Like they, they want to kill Paul. Like we read earlier, they say, this man is not fit to live. We want to rid the earth of him. So there's this crazy mob that's formed. Things are getting out of control. And the Roman soldiers show up to create some order, and they don't know what's happening here. And so this is really amazing. They, they pull Paul aside, and they want to listen to what he has to say. So they give him space to speak. They give him space to share what's going on here. And amazingly, the crowd, this crazy, fired-up mob that wants to kill Paul, amazingly, they're hushed, and they're silenced. So Paul has some time to share his story to share his story about encountering Jesus. And it's particularly when he shares the story of what God has given him to do. Like this is the mission and ministry that God has for him to take this message of Jesus to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. When Paul says that, that's when we pick up with what we read this morning, verse 22. Let me reread it for you. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. And then they interrupted him. They cut him off. No more. They raised their voices and they shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. And things get crazy again. This mob sort of forms. They grab Paul. The Roman soldiers have no idea what's happening. They don't know why this mob is so intensely angry. And so they pull Paul aside. They protect him. They keep him safe. And they take him somewhere. And they're like, man, we've got to figure out from this guy what's going on. So we'll do so, again, through torture, which was common in the day. If you're a non-Roman citizen, it's very accepted and common practice, unfortunately. And so then again, they stretch Paul out to torture him, figure out what's going on. Paul declares at the last possible moment this dramatic climax, are you about to do this? I'm a Roman citizen. So they pull back to regroup. The commander goes to Paul like, hey, how are you a Roman citizenship? My Roman citizenship was, was really expensive, a large sum of money. And I don't know if Paul's doing it on purpose or not. I kind of like to think that he is. He kind of sarcastically one-ups him. Like, well, I'm a Roman citizen by birth. And so other translations talk about how afraid this Roman commander is. 
because of how much trouble he could be in for what he did to Paul, a Roman citizen. So Paul, as an adult male who is a Roman citizen, he recognizes that he had privileges that other people did not have. He had advantages in life that other people did not have. And though we're progressed in our modern society, the same is true for us 2,000 years later. Some of us have privileges that others in this room do not have. Some of us have advantages, perhaps to the disadvantage of others in this room. And so I wanna unpack this in, in a couple different ways. First, I want us to reflect on how this is all kind of built into our system, our society in which we find ourselves. And then secondly, I want to give you some guidance for what it looks like for you to face your own privilege, facing your privilege. And then lastly, that'll lead us to reflect on this question, so what? So what, what do we do with this? So first, facing a system of privilege. Let me share with you a couple of examples. There are these really, really good documentary series that are on Netflix right now. Like most anything I watch on Netflix, Robin um, informed me about this documentary series that I need to be watching called the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. And so in a, each one has its own series, about 10 episodes, and they just kind of retell all the stories, all the highlights, all the culturally important and relevant things that were taking place in those decades. So I just finished the 90s, now I'm in the 2000s. And the last episode of the 90s, it's really easy to find on Netflix, it's called The 90s. They don't win any points with creativity there, the 90s. So just go home, search, search for it. You don't have to necessarily watch it in order. The last episode in the series called The 90s, at least for me, was particularly powerful and profound and moving and alarming. The last episode in that series unpacks race relations in the 1990s. And so one of the things that they share, a statistic that they give is in the midst of spikes in crime, President Bill Clinton um, signed into place something called the Crime Bill. If you were uh, not you know, 12 years old in the 90s, you may remember this happening. And part of the Crime Bill uh, said this, that if you're caught with five grams of crack cocaine, then you go to federal prison for five years you're caught with five grams of crack cocaine, which is a drug that was cheaper and more readily available in mostly lower income, mostly black, mostly urban communities. If you're caught with that, then you earn five years in federal prison. On the other hand, powder cocaine, which is more common, as you know, in middle to upper class, more affluent communities, college communities, uh, predominantly white communities, to earn the same prison sentence of five years, you have to be caught not with five grams of powder cocaine, but 500 grams of powder cocaine. Do you see the disparity there? So obviously this led to a huge and imbalanced influx of primarily black men into our prison system. 
Another story I read earlier this year, this really, really good book that I cannot recommend highly enough. And again, that is not just preacher hyperbole. Um, We have it in the back. It's called I'm Still Here um, by a woman named Austin Channing Brown. Austin will actually be here, not for this upcoming rabbit hole lecture, but for the next one, the last one in 2019. It'll be really important, really good time for our city to come and hear from Austin Channing Brown. So Austin shares about how when she started to get a little bit older as she was growing, she recognized that her name didn't sound like a traditional name that a young black woman would have. And so she had a conversation with her parents. And her mom told you, oh, your name is is very intentional. I gave you your name so that you're more likely to get an in-person interview at whatever job you send in a resume for. Because it's statistically true that a traditional white sounding name is much more likely to get an in-person interview for your average American corporation. Now I share these sad examples because these are part of our modern world. These aren't things that happened 200 years ago. These are things that are happening right now. And of course, there are a million more ways that we can illustrate the point that there's a systemic, there's a systemic nature to privilege. Now, of course, these systemic realities find their roots as a country in the unjust and oppressive and racist practices and our nation's birth. And those roots still linger today. It's like, it's like these roots grew up into a forest. And no matter what work we're trying to do, we're still a part of that forest. And just like in a forest, the leaves give you oxygen to breathe, this is in the air that we're breathing because we're all a part of this larger system. That's part of what it means to be human, that there's an interconnectedness to us as humans. There's an interwovenness to us as humans. If I can go philosophical on you for just just 30 seconds, bear with me. I love this stuff, and so does does Jim, so right here. Um, It's a little bit harder for us, it's a little bit against the grain of our nature as globally Western people to unpack this and to peel back the layers and to see this, this systemic nature, how there's an interconnectedness and a wovenness to our life as humans, because there's a real sort of individualistic current underneath everything that we do. This isn't the case in the global East where there's a collectivistic current running under everything they do. But it's ironic that even that, even that exposes that whether you want to acknowledge it, whether you like it or not, we're all a part of something together. Like we're being formed and shaped by these sort of philosophical undercurrents that are just part of the air that we're breathing So our system advantages some to the disadvantage of others. It privileges some. And the same was true in Paul's day. And again, though we're modern people who have progressed, our system is no different 2,000 years later. I, I as a white person, have privileges that people of color in our society do not have. Another example So I grew up in a family where home ownership was the norm. 
Like my parents owned the house where I grew up and my grandparents owned their home and I don't know how many generations back, but home ownership was a normal thing. For a person of color, you're statistically less likely to grow up where home ownership is a generational thing because of this sad and tragic reality called mortgage discrimination. There were tons of studies about this in the 1990s where all things being equal, all things being equal, a black or Hispanic applicant for a home load was 1.6 times more likely to be rejected than a white counterpart, all things being equal. And of course, this has huge implications. Like it's not just, it's not just for the family trying to own the home, but there's generational implications, generational wealth or generational poverty. As a white man, I recognize that I have even more privilege and more privileges in the society in which I operate. Where I'm 75% more likely to earn a job in a management position at your average American corporation than a woman, all things being equal. 75% more likely as a white male. I looked for some research and studies and there's just no firm data on this. So this, this piece of data is subjective. It's just based on my experience, but in the evangelical church as a white male, in my experience, I'm a thousand percent more likely to have a leadership position than all things being equal than a woman. And so I have to recognize, I have to see that, that in many ways, I am where I am because privileges that were afforded to me, advantages that I had over others. So we have to start doing the hard work of what does it look like to face your privilege. When I was in high school, um, I played in a, uh, a, a band, like a garage band, but we played like, um, like punk rock sort of emo music which wasn't really, like it, it just wasn't successful in Grenada, Mississippi. Um, and we were high school kids, so we didn't have a lot of stuff. Like if you're gonna play in a punk rock band, you have to have equipment to like make really loud and obnoxious sounds. I still like those sounds to this day. And so we just, we didn't have money and we didn't have stuff. And fortunately, many of us um, were part of Grenada High School Band and they had all the stuff we needed. And so we got permission, like, hey, if, if you all ever need to borrow speakers and microphones, you're welcome to borrow those things. And I remember this moment where one afternoon after school was over, us just going into the band hall and like taking stuff, like taking microphones and taking speakers and taking mixers and all this sort of stuff and walking out and realizing that no one questioned us like, no one stopped us to ask us what we were doing. And it struck me. I didn't realize at the time what was happening, but it struck me. Fast forward several years, a few years ago, um, I'm, I was working for, I was and I am working for Christ City Church, and we used to meet way back in the day. Was anybody a part of when we met with, um, at Minglewood Hall? Yes, that is, that's way more than I thought. Anyway, we... Um, we met at Minglewood Hall, and so that's where all our stuff was, and we had, uh, we had an off-site event, 
And so we had to take a ton of chairs. And so, you know, I, I drive a little car. I can't put a lot of chairs in my car. So I borrow from SOS, a ministry that I'm friends with, um, a white unmarked van. And me and a friend who looks very much like I do, um, we pull up to Minglewood Hall and get out of our white unmarked van, open the door, and we trip the alarm. And we're like, oh, well, we're, we just go about our business. And so we're loading chairs from Minglewood Hall into a white unmarked van, and police show up because we tripped the alarm. And they're, they're like, hey, hey, is everything okay? The alarm was tripped. And we're like, yeah, we're just, we're just loading out these chairs. And they're like, cool. And they left. And it's laughable, but it struck me again, like, they didn't, e they didn't even act, like, we could take whatever we want. And so was, these two stories I was becoming aware of, my experience of privilege. And that's a hugely important step. And I don't want to diminish that. Like, becoming aware of the privilege that you have wherever you are, whatever circumstances you find you're in, just becoming aware Awareness is huge because it, it helps you put on these new lenses by which you view everything. Like everything starts to look a little bit different. It's like moving from 2D to 3D or black and white film to full color film. Everything begins to look different as you grow in awareness. But I think this is an important step for, any, for many of us. Steps two, three, four, five, six are all the same. Because especially if you're a person like me, if you're a white man, then this is a journey. Like this is just something that we're doing and we don't arrive or end. Like it's just part of who we are. This is important work that's ongoing. So steps two, three, four, five, six, seven, on and on and on. Those steps are really important. And the step is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes and not listening, like, like zone in for 30 seconds and then do whatever you were doing, okay? F facing your privilege means listening. It means listening. Listening to the experiences of other people who are not like you. Listening. Let me share with you a, um, a sentence, and it's a loaded sentence. It's packed, so I'll, we'll put it up on the screen. It's in hearing the experiences of others that you become alert to the full meaning of your own experiences and the interconnectedness that we all share as humans. Let me say it again. It is in hearing the experiences of others that you become alert to the full meaning of your own experiences and the interconnected humanity that we all share. When you listen to others who are not like you, there's the real opportunity for genuine transformation and growth and change. So here's a question for you to reflect on and consider, especially, especially again, if you're in privileged positions in our society, if you're a white man, especially, here's a question for you to reflect on. Is there any significant thing that you've believed, that you've held on to, that over the past 10 years, 20 years, however long, you've changed your mind about? Is there any significant thing that you've held on to? This is, this is truth, this is important to me, this is a value. 
that you've changed your mind about. That sort of transformation can only take place when you're listening to people who have different experiences than you have. So you all know as a church, uh, we moved recently from this complementarian structure of leadership, which is a big word that means basically um, men lead in the highest capacities at the highest levels, and women aren't allowed to lead in those capacities at those levels, complementarian. You know that we shifted from complementarian church leadership to egalitarian church leadership, which means men and women can lead together. Women can lead in any capacity in our church. It's a really big deal. And that happened for us as a church, but like zoom in, that happened in my heart through doing this exact thing, through talking and defending less and listening more reading and engaging with people that I don't know, like authors and other people and their experiences, that's important, but talking and listening and growing a relationship with other churches who are in kind of different places, different experiences in our church and, and even like locally in relationship with women and listening to their stories, hearing their experiences and seeing like this transformation, this change happen in me. It's in hearing the experiences of others that you become alert to the full meaning of your own experiences and the interconnected humanity that we all share. Now, the presupposition here is that you're actually in a relationship with other people who aren't like you, which unfortunately isn't the most common thing in our world. But that's such at the heart of what we're trying to do at Christ City Church, where we can be a place where all sorts of people can belong, people who don't look like you, think like you, vote like you, believe like you, where we can all be in relationship together and we can all experience transformation and growth together. A place where it's not risky for you to bring your questions and to listen, to be vulnerable, to be in relationship with other people so that we can experience this sort of growth together. I think this is what it means to follow Jesus and to grow into the full maturity of Jesus. This is what it looks like. So as we do that more and more, we're faced with this question. Like, okay, well, so now what? what do, okay, so I'm, I'm a white man who's a pastor in the South. Like, what do I do with that? What do I do with the privilege that I have? Again, I hope this is just like some starter conversations. This is a journey and we can continue to, continue to talk about these things. But to begin to reflect on the question, because I don't have an answer, but to begin to reflect on the question, we have to ask ourselves another question. And that question is this, what's the, what's the telos or what's the end? What's the aim? What's the hope? Where are we trying to get? What's the telos here? And the telos for me, for our church is, is this, that we want a more equitable, a more just society where every single person can, can flourish in their full humanity. We want a refreshed world, just like we say in our church's mission statement, right? Becoming followers of Jesus who recover their lives, reimagine their purpose, and refresh their world. We want to see, like, maybe in the church, we could be mirrors 
reflecting God back to the world around us and reflecting God's intentions for humanity to the worlds around us. God's love for people as Imago Dei, as people who are created in the image of God, a, a place where, where Imago Dei isn't just a talking point, but where it's a lived out reality that every person has worth, value, and dignity because they bear God's image. Unfortunately, in churches, that's just a talking point, but not a lived out reality. But could the telos be like, that's something that we all experience more and more. And so if that's the telos, then I think it's really important for us to be having conversation now right? For us to grow in awareness, for us to listen, for us to have a conversation, but our conversations will have to turn necessarily to action. So let me give you that loaded statement again and kind of add something to it. It'll be on the screen for you. It's in hearing the experience of others that you become alert to the full meaning of your own experiences and the interconnected humanity that we all share so that we can all move towards a more flourishing society together. Paul, I think, gives us a picture of that in this text. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, I don't think it's cowardice that caused Paul at the last minute to be like, hey, stop, stop. Do you know that I'm a Roman citizen? I don't think Paul was being a coward because he doesn't strike me as a cowardly person. (laughs) Like, he seems like a very courageous person who's not afraid to be beat, like he's, that happens to him over and over and over. But at this moment, he does something different. So I don't think he's being cowardly here. I think Paul really wants to get to Rome. Like he knows that he's not finished yet and he doesn't want anything slowing him down. Like he wants to get to Rome so that he can keep loving people and serving people and encouraging and building up the church and sharing this good news about Jesus as king So for the sake of others, Paul steps into his privilege. I don't think it's a selfish, cowardly move. I think it's a selfless for the sake of others because I want to get to Rome because I'm not done here yet. Do you realize that I'm a privileged Roman citizen and you have no right to do this to me? Gloria Jean Watkins, um, she's better known by her pen name, uh, Bell Hooks. She said this, that privilege is not an end, or the privilege is not in and of itself bad. Privilege is not in and of itself bad. What matters is what we do with privilege. Privilege is not in and of itself bad. What matters is what we do with privilege. And we see a beautiful example in the Apostle Paul. I think we see an even more beautiful example in King Jesus. So let me read for you this text. It's a little bit longer, but it's good and rich and really vital, I believe, to this conversation. So follow along as I read a few verses from Philippians chapter two. Philippians two. This is what Paul writes about Jesus. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, clung to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see Jesus ultimately privileged, God himself, but not grasping for that, not clinging on to that, but willingly lowering himself lower and lower and lower to be a servant to all of humanity, lowering himself all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. This beautifully captures and illustrates the rest of what Bell Hooks says. Let me read for you this full quote from Bell Hooks. Privilege in and of itself um, is not bad. What matters is what we do with privilege. We have to share our resources and take direction about how to use our privilege in ways that empower those who lack it. What a picture of Jesus. Taking his privilege, not grasping for it, but willingly emptying himself of it so that he can serve and so they can raise up others. All the way to the point of death. May we set our mind, our heart, our gaze on Jesus and so be moved to serve others in that sort of way. Now, before I close, I have to issue a word of warning. This is important. I could end, but I fear that even this could be taken and used to further injustice and to further this sort of this sort of divide that we see in our system. What I mean is that, and I see this, I see this on a broader cultural level too. Like we're sort of in this liminal moment. We're on a cusp. Like we've yet to see what exactly is going to happen on a broader cultural level. And I see the potential for this and it makes me afraid. And so a word of warning It's possible for someone who's in a privileged position like myself to take this and to still hoard power and privilege even through trying to look like Jesus. Like it's possible for this to kind of like inflame a savior complex in me, like a hero mentality, right? Like, okay, so I'm the privileged person, so... I'll take the back seat so that you can have the front seat when really, like, it's still just about me. I'm still the privileged person. Privilege has a lot to do. This is a different conversation, but it's related. Privilege has a lot to do with with power. And power has a lot to do with control. So even by me, like, taking myself out of the driver's seat, putting myself in the back seat, like, I can in this sick and twisted way, and you can and we can in this sick and twisted way, like, still... Use that to hold on to power and control and to inflame a savior complex, a hero mentality. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Aren't I just like Jesus? If privilege is connected to power and power is connected to control, then as I've been reflecting on this, there seems to be one hope, and that one hope for all of us is simply surrender. Surrender. Surrendering privilege, surrendering power, 
surrendering control, like loosening our grip. You don't have to defend. You don't have to hoard power. You can loosen your grip and surrender, and it's okay. You know, a lot of, I hear a lot of conversation today about this idea of faith in Jesus. Maybe talked about better, like, allegiance to Jesus as king. And if you're, like, if you have, truly have allegiance to Jesus as king, then you can give up control. You can surrender, knowing, like, Jesus has got this. Like, I don't have to do anything. Like, I can surrender to other people. I can surrender to Jesus, and it's just Okay and it's gonna be okay. So as we move into communion, just one last, um, one last reflection, just kind of opening up about where I've been. The past couple of weeks, I've been reflecting on this a lot. Privilege and the systemic nature of privilege and the privilege that I have and surrendering to Jesus and even the sick and twisted way that we still hold on to power and control as people of privilege And as I've reflected on that, I've felt really hopeless. Like, can change ever come? Like, can things ever be different? Paul, 2,000 years ago, was a person of privilege. 2,000 years later, our systems are no different. Is there any hope? And of course, there's the temptation there to move into a place of real cynicism and despair. But also behind that hopelessness, I find a longing. There's this longing, there's this passion for things to be right and just and equitable for all people. There's this longing behind the words that Jesus taught us to pray in the the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's this longing. And as I, the last couple of days have leaned into that longing a little bit. New fervency as I pray those words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth here as it is in heaven where things are right, where there's a mago day, where things are just. As I've leaned into that last couple of days, I've I found hope. Because Jesus is king, his kingdom is coming, and his kingdom is already here. And we get to be a part of seeing it grow and expand in this world, a kingdom where things are right, where things are just, where things are good, where things are flourishing and rich, the sort of kingdom that all of us deep down are longing for. We're all longing, J.R.R. Tolkien says, we're all longing for Eden. We're all longing for Jesus, uh, for the kingdom of Jesus and Jesus as king. So now we get to go to the table for communion. This is the climax of our service every week because we all come on equal footing. We all surrender to Jesus as king. I can do nothing here. I have to rely totally on you, your body and your blood, your life, your death, your resurrection, your ascension. Jesus, I totally put my hope, my faith, my allegiance in you. And at this table, the kingdom breaks forth just a little bit more. So let's pray. Lord, I'm encouraged this morning by scripture and by your word and 
how it can speak to us so powerfully even in our own day. And so, Lord, I do pray that, that these would be conversation starters, that we would continue to engage, we would continue to listen, we would continue to dialogue with one another, we would experience transformation, that the world would experience refreshment through us, that the kingdom of Jesus would grow, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so now, Lord, we pray that you'd be present in a very real and tangible way as we come and partake of your body and your blood, Lord and King Jesus. Amen.